It's Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8 is our scripture reading. And it reads, And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This is the second angel's message, and this message is entitled, The Collapse of Confusion. The Collapse of Confusion. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study your word. Once again, Lord, I ask that you just make me a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. Upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard today. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. So another angel comes on the scene. And this one says that Babylon is fallen. The word Babylon has two meanings. The first one, if you go back to its original meaning, actually means the gate to the gods. This goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel and what they were trying to build. you remember? All the way up. But then, because God confounded the language, Babylon also became tied to the word confusion. In fact, to this day in English, if someone talks in a way that you cannot understand, you say that they babble. So that great city, why has she fallen? Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. When you look at this, the wine then would be false doctrine, fermented doctrine, something that should have been good that has now gone bad and causes damage. The wrath in the, in the, in the Greek is a word that means with great passion. With great passion. So she had them drink of this with great passion. Uh, and what did they drink of? The wine of the wrath of her fornication, the twisting of things, the, the mixing of things together that don't belong together. Now, so as we said last night, the original story is here. Daniel in this story um, steps in. Belshazzar, Daniel says to him, he had not humbled his heart, though he knew all of this. What did he know? If I had time, we'd go through the story. But he knew that his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had been driven mad. And for seven years, he ate the grass of the field, grew out his hair. He grew long. His nails grew into long claws. And for seven years, he was out of his mind. Remember? Nebuchadnezzar is one of the few pagan leaders, if maybe not the only pagan leader in all of the scripture, who is converted to worship the one true God. This is why the punishment on Babylon is so great, because his grandson knew better and did not do better. And so, of course, he had lifted up his, his, the, the glass of the vessels and he had praised the gods of silver and gold. He had done all of this thing. And look what Daniel says. And the God in whose hand thy breath is and whose are all thy ways hast thou not glorified. That's why Babylon falls. Because Babylon refused to be humble. I want you gonna, we're going to come back to that. 
Daniel 5 goes on to say, then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this was the writing was written. Um, meaning, meaning, tikl ufarsin, interpreted meaning, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tikl, you are weighed in the balances and are found wanting. The kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So this story parallels to the three angels' messages because judgment comes in the first angel's message, right? And then Babylon falls in the second angel message. And almost an exact parallel. In fact, one of the interesting things about this story is that there are three times in the Bible that God writes. How many times? Three times at least that God writes. The first time God writes is in the, in the, in the five books of Moses. What does God, God write with his own finger in tablets of stone? The Bible says that God writes the Ten Commandments with his own finger into tables of stone. I want you to get this. By writing it in stone, it is a statement that the Ten Commandments are permanent. When I was in archaeological digs in Israel, they would pull up pieces of stone and you could still see the inscription. I remember once they showed us a site at there was a time when people were questioning whether or not the uh, King David ever existed. And we went to a site and they were able to show us that from the ground they pulled up a piece of stone or whatever it was. And on it was the inscription Dawid. It, David's name was on it. And because the rocks cried out, we, we were able to prove that David actually existed. So the first time God wrote, he wrote the Ten Commandments in stone. It is immutable, unchangeable. It is fixed because the Ten Commandments were written in stone. By what? By the finger of God. The second time God writes is in this story. And in this story, he writes based on the judgment of the Ten Commandments he wrote the first time. But this time he writes in plaster, not as permanent as stone. The judgment is written in plaster. And a finger comes out of nowhere and writes on the plaster above the wall, meany, meany, tikl ufarsin. That is the second time God writes. He's judging based on the first time he writes. Now look at this. Because I like the third time God writes. The third time God writes... A woman is taken completely naked and she is thrown down at the feet of Jesus. And they say to Jesus, Master, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, in the very act. And they say, listen, this woman, according to the scripture, she should be stoned. They want to now judge her based on the first time God wrote. But God is there. You see, Jesus is God. Don't let the anti-Trinitarian folk fool you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? The Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and did what? And dwelt among us. So when the woman is laying there, Jesus does not even give a counter-argument. What does he do? He dips down into the sand and the dirt of the ground and Jesus begins to write again with a finger. He begins to write all the sins of the men accusing the woman. The Bible says that from the eldest to the youngest, they begin to slip off. Jesus say, that's right. Rabbi so-and-so was caught doing And this, can you imagine? It's like TMZ in the United States. 
They got busted and they began to slip away. And Jesus wrote all of this in the dirt, in the dust, in the sand of the ground. Eventually, everyone, even the crowd was afraid and disappeared. The Bible doesn't even mention the disciples after Jesus writes their sin in the, in the ground. He and the woman, the scripture says, are left alone. And Jesus says, woman, where are your accusers? He says, I don't have any. Jesus' words to her are words that we need to share with each other as a church. He says, neither do I condemn you. First thing, Jesus is not looking to condemn you for what you did wrong. But then the second line is just as important. He says, go and do what? Sin no more. The first time God writes, he writes in stone, immutable, unchangeable. It must be the way it is written. The Ten Commandments should not be altered. The second time, he judges based on the first time, and he writes with a hand in the plaster above the wall. But the third time, he writes sin in the dirt of the ground. Why? Because with just his foot, Jesus can wipe the sin away. You see, what some of us believe is that our sins are written in stone and the law is written in sand. Your sin, with just the move of Jesus' foot, can be wiped away. Three times, God writes. This was the second time. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So what does the Bible do? It gives us some examples of what this really means. And, and so one of them is Jeremiah 50, speaking of the fall of Babylon. He says, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighbor cities thereof, saith the Lord, so shall no man abide there, neither shall any son of man dwell therein. Jeremiah says, listen, when Babylon falls, it's, fall, it's going to fall for good. And this is talking about the literal first Babylon, the, the very Babylon of the story we're talking about. It will never again be inhabited. And he references a link back to Sodom and Gomorrah. If you really want to understand the sins of Babylon, you have to understand the same way Sodom was punished, Babylon is punished. Very similar way in that it will never come back. Could it be that if we understood what the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were, that we would understand better the sins of Babylon that caused it to fall? Here it is, Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Look at what the number one sin is for Sodom. What does that say? Pride. The number one sin for Sodom is pride. Pride and arrogance, just as Belshazzar was arrogant. He was so arrogant, he thought that Babylon could never fall because of the great walls that it had and the big rations of food it had stored up and the river that ran through it. In fact, he was arrogant and didn't realize the very river that should prevent him from ever having a city fall is what literally his enemies used to divert and walked their armies under the city, into his city, and took it over. This pride is the sin God hates the most. And isn't it funny now what you see is more and more people, more and more groups saying pride, this kind of pride, 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 pride. In the States, everything is about pride. The sin that caused Sodom and Gomorrah to fall is the sin of pride. 
Then it says fullness of bread and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Look at this one. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they were haughty. All of that sin is what caused them to commit abomination. And God says, therefore, I took them away as I saw what? As I saw good. If you want to understand the sin that ultimately destroys empires, that ultimately destroys people, it is the sin of pride. First one mentioned. A lot of people think it's all kind of uh, a sexual deviation. Let me tell you something. That is the sin. That is the sin you got to worry about. Because if you get this sin, all other sins will follow. Ellen White says it like this in Prophets and Kings, page 532. She says, Thus the broad walls of Bob Babylon became utterly broken and her high gates burned with fire. Thus did Jehovah of hosts cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Thus did Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans, excellency, become as Sodom and Gomorrah. See the connection again? A place forever accursed. It shall never be inhabited. Inspiration has declared, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to de generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there. Neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. When Babylon fell, that was it. And this is modern day Babylon now. It remains uninhabited to this day. Those of us in the, audience, in the room that are Americans, we would remember that when America, America invaded Iraq twice, Saddam Hussein was the dictator in power both times. The second time, they decided they were going to take Saddam Hussein out. You can argue if that was good or bad. What is interesting, though, is that Saddam Hussein had the idea he was going to rebuild ancient Babylon. And with his capture and death, the prophecy remained true that Babylon, the original city of Babylon, about 56 kilometers south and, I believe, west of, of, the, of modern day, um, uh, the modern day capital of Iraq, it fell and he could not put it back together. When God says something, he means it. Sodom and Gomorrah says it, it would never be inhabited again. If you ever go to Israel and you visit the Dead Sea, when you go in the Dead Sea and you can float, anybody can float. It's full of salt. I don't care who you are, you will float. And you know what's underneath all that water and that salty water? The city of Sodom. It will never be inhabited again at the north end of the Dead Sea. But then the Bible really begins to explain it. This is where we're going to get, it gets a little deeper. It begins to explain what actually happened during this fall. There's more detail in Revelation 18. And after this things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And this angel cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. It became full of satanic influence. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Same words as in Revelation 14. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And as we learned last night, that tells you that one, it was a spiritual power. Two, it was a great political influencer and power because the kings of the earth committed fornication with her. But the other part of it, it is and was a great economic power. 
Babylon was known for it. In fact, the way that we invest to this day can be dated all the way back to Babylon. There's a book I read once called, uh, you probably read it too, The Richest Man in Babylon. Teaches you how to invest and talk about things. And it goes all the way back to Chaldean wisdom. This was a significant economic power. Verse 4 says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. We'll talk more about this tomorrow. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Remember I told you about the tears that are caught in the bottle? And they're written on the paper? And all the people that did it, people wrong? Trust me, God remembers all the injustice, all the iniquity that has ever been done. It says, and the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buys their merchandise anymore. Look at the merchandise. Gold and silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple and silk and scarlet, and all thine wood, and all manner of vessels of ivory, and all manner of vessels of precious wood, and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon. And look at where this thing goes and odors, and ointments, and frankincense, and wine, and oil, and fine flour, and wheat, and beasts, and sheep, and horses, and chariots. Look at the last two things that Babylon engaged in trafficking. Slaves and the souls of men. If you want to recognize Babylon, the Bible gives you a whole nother way to. If you can find the power that has all of those three things, political, economic, and religious power, that engaged in trading all these things, and in the slaves and the souls of men, it will also point you to that power. And it will show you that that power was destructive and that that power has fallen. Now watch this. This is called the good ship Jesus. We're going to get deep now. This is the first slave ship that the British used to actually send slaves to the Western Hemisphere. In fact, the captain was Admiral, Sir Admiral John Hawkins. He was uh, commissioned by Queen Elizabeth, who actually gave him the ship to borrow. It's an interesting story, and I'm going to tell you why we're going here in a second. She was the Protestant queen in England. Mary was a Catholic, her sister. It's a very interesting story because between the two women was very different lifestyle. Mary, when she was Queen of England, persecuted the Protestants terribly. Elizabeth actually had to hide. And Elizabeth wanted to protect the Protestants. The funny thing about Elizabeth, however, is she still always wore a crucifix, they say. She had some connection back to Catholicism. But what happened is that John Hawkins was going to go and sell and trade and come back to England. And one of the things Queen Elizabeth, being a, a Christian, she said to him was, whatever you do, if you take labor from Africa, they must go willingly. Are you getting this? They have to be, they, it has to be under their own volition that they want to go. Now, what's interesting is he, went to, he came to the, the, to the west coast of Africa and he actually took over a Portuguese ship in which there were somewhere between 300 and 500 slaves. He took them against their will or with lies. It was also full of ivory and skins and gold, other precious things. He took the slaves and went to the Dominican, what is now the Dominican Republic, on the island of Hispaniola, and he sold the slaves for what would be the equivalent of about 35 or 45 
our dollars today, or British pounds is what the article said. He then went back to England with all of these riches. When Queen, when Queen Elizabeth found out what he did, she was upset. She said that was deplorable. Then when she saw how much money they made, she said, I'll be a partner. And that's how the British got into the slave trade. Now, I show you this because the name of the ship was Jesus. It was actually built in Germany, the ship. Um, and the name of it is really Jesus of the town it was built in in Germany. But it's relevant because in America right now, there are many black people who say they will no longer be Christian because this ship's name was Jesus. Now, what's interesting is clearly Jesus didn't name the ship. Amen? It had nothing to do with anything. But what we're finding is that there are more and more, and this goes back to Babylon creating confusion, there are more and more black people around the world, and I've heard even in Africa who are saying, I will not be a Christian because I will not accept a white Jesus. Have you guys ever heard that? I want to walk you through why that makes, that does not make sense. And I, and I, and I think it'll be beneficial if we can get through it. So the truth of the matter is, if you want to know how the slave trade really got its fire, it happened under Pope Nicholas V. He did it. He issued the papal bull Dum de Versas on the 18th of June in 1452. It authorized Alfonso V of Portugal to reduce any Saracens, the Muslims, and pagans, any other unbelievers, to perpetual slavery. This facilitated the Portuguese slave trade from West Africa. They're the second largest country with people of African descent in the world is what? Brazil. And what language do they speak in Brazil? Portuguese. Number one is Nigeria. So the second largest country with black people in the world is actually a product of this papal bull. Now what the Catholics defend is they say, well, a papal bull is not, it is not doctrine. But the fact that the Pope did it, now then you, you go online and many of the Catholics will, they put up all the other bulls that the Popes did, you know, forbidding slavery on this in Philippines and forgiveness. But the truth of the matter is this enabled slavery to take hold. And when you think about it, remember what we're talking about, Babylon, a religious power combined with political power, the kings and queens of Europe, because the Pope had great influence on the kings and queens even of England combined with an economic system to profit. Just as Revelation 18 says, they began to trade in the souls of men, and uh, the slaves and the souls of men. The slaves was the physical enslavement of the men. The souls of men is that it was also a spiritual enslavement, not just of the slave, but of the slave master and the slave trader. I want you to understand that when Christians finally, white Christians finally began to say, especially the Quakers in North America, when they began to speak against slavery, here's the irony, it was still white Christians and abolitionists who end, helped to end the slave trade. In fact, in England, one of my favorite stories is the, is the story of the gentleman who wrote the, book, wrote the song Amazing Grace. He was once a slave ship uh, captain. When he was converted, he realized the terrible things that he had done. And he took the words that God gave him. 
And you know what the, where he got the melody from to put the words to? The most popular hymn of all time? He heard the African slaves hum it when he was on the ship. And he took, put the words to it. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He was pastor, and the name is slipping my, my his name is slipping my, my mind now. But he was the pastor to the very English um, uh, lord who went into Parliament and finally ended the British slave trade. So it was a terrible thing that slavery began, and it tested not just the spiritual character of the slave, but it actually corrupted the spiritual character of the slave owner and the slave trader. This is quintessential Babylon. In fact, when they say that they had nothing to do with it in 2016, Georgetown University, Jesuit University in Washington, D.C., offered a public apology after acknowledging that 188 years earlier, Jesuit priests sold 272 slaves to save the school from financial ruin. Georgetown University, one of the most prestigious universities in the United States of America, actually sold slaves to keep the doors of the school open. The Society of Jesus, who helped to establish Georgetown University and whose leaders enslaved and mercilessly sold your ancestors, stand before you to say that we have greatly sinned, Reverend Timothy Kosicki said, President of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. Um, we pray with you today because we have greatly sinned and because we are what? We're profoundly sorry. I wonder how much money they gave back the ancestors. I don't think they gave many back. So uh, many argue the church of, that, that Babylon had nothing to do with this. I'm going somewhere with this. Keep following me. This book is one of the hardest books you'll ever find. It's called Slavery and Catholicism. Even on Amazon, I, you can't find it by Richard Roscoe Miller. And in this, it's called Slavery and Catholicism, published in 1957. On the 37th page, if you go and look, it gives you this information. This is not the exact quote from it. The Church of Rome did not consider the African slave a human being until 1839, Miller says. Miller adds that this only occurred after the abolition movement by the American Anti-Slavery Society and the certainty of the writing on the wall that someday slavery would be abolished. Talking about Babylon now. Literally did not consider, and there's a whole bunch more to this. I could pull up the, there was a priest that sent back to the Pope and said, listen, we can't enslave the Indians on these islands in the Caribbean or in, in North America. They can't handle the work. We, need, we, could send, we should send for Africans instead. And he's given permission to do that. The, what he says in this book is something deep, though. He says the scariest part of what happened in the slave trade is not simply that the Catholicism drove it. It is that all the Protestant denominations, except for two, followed Rome into the sin. That, he says, is the scariest part of what happened in the slave trade because only the Quakers, to a great extent, fought against slavery. They could not believe that people would enslave other people like that. The Quakers fought against it. And then he mentions something really peculiar. He says, and the other denomination, 
that fought against slavery even before it was organized into an organized body was the Seventh-day Adventist Church. How powerful is that? That the only denomination, you see in a pattern now, after all the truths that Professor Vice showed you were never corrupted, that were, that were kept in place, brought to North America, gathered together around the Adventists under the time of William Miller, and that when you go through the great disappointment and cross over 1844, all of those truths are gathered together. Only one uh, denomination brings all of the truths into one place. It is also, I believe, signaled that they are uh, not the agents of Babylon in that they are also the only denomination to purely never be involved in slavery and to have always been speaking out against that. And that's even though the denomination itself was not racially perfect in terms of its thinking. However, the, the teaching, if you study the Bible, all by itself it will tell you, you can't have the truth of the Sabbath or the truth of the state of the dead and at the same time enslave people. Are you getting what I'm saying? One of the signs of who Babylon was, this collection of not just Rome, as we'll see in a second, but all of, the, of, the, of her daughters. That's what the Bible says, right? Her daughters will follow her. And if you think, because one of the things he says in his book that is profound is when he says that, in fact, he draws parallels between Rome's persecution of the Protestants in Europe he says it was very similar to the way slaves were treated in North America and the Caribbean. He says, in fact, you could draw a line between the two things. They're so similar. Eventually, there will just be two camps in the world. And either you will stand on the side of Bible truth, like should have happened during the time of slavery, or you won't. So what does this do? And let me, let me, I'm going to do a little sidebar here. All of this history, if taken wrong, causes people of African descent to believe that Christianity is the white man's religion. It makes them believe that they are to stay away from Jesus. In fact, there are, there are uh, Instagram posts and pictures that say things like, um, um, the first, this is the first view of Jesus our ancestors saw, and in, the, in, a, in a reflection in the eye of a child is the, is the good ship Jesus. And they're saying, if you're a Christian, and this is in America, if you're a Christian and you're black, you're an idiot to be a Christian because why would you follow this diabolical religion that would do this? Who do you think is really behind all of that? It's Satan. And I'm going to show you that, in fact, Satan is working hard to use race like he did with me. Remember I told you my testimony? He is working hard to use race in the last days to separate people so that they will not follow or hear these three angels' messages. So they will not hear the everlasting gospel. He wants to trap people in self. What was the sin of Babylon? Pride. Arrogance. The idea that my culture, my color, my nation, my race is what's most important. And you don't have to be white to be racist. Don't have to be. You can be black and be racist as well. You know they tell me in America when I say that? Uh, that's not true. We don't have the power. That's an issue of intent, right, attorney? <laughs> if you had the power and you would do damage, then you're a racist. So this is... Um,
Kendrick Lamar, famous uh, U.S. rapper. This is the Hebrew Israelites. I bring them up because I don't know if they've gotten here yet, but they, don't, they, they believe that the blacks of North America and the Caribbean are actually the actual children of Israel, the ten lost tribes. I have no idea where they get that from, but it is one of the most popular beliefs in the United States among young African Americans. In fact, I'm at churches preaching, and Hebrew Israelites will come into the church in our inner cities and try and convince black and Latino young men that in fact they should not be in the church because they are the direct descendants of Abraham. And they don't need the church to get the blessings of Abraham. Here's the thing, if you don't know the truth, the Rastafarians will come and tell you, listen, you should follow Selassie. Jesus came in the flesh as the emperor of Ethiopia. That's what they'll tell you. They'll play on the fact that you hurt because of the injustices you suffered and convince you that, in fact, somehow you're not actually the inferior one in the equation. You're the superior one in the equation. Classic Luciferian doctrine. Kendrick Lamar. We'll talk more, a little more about this stuff tomorrow. But Kendrick Lamar has a line. He says, I'm not about a religion. I'm an Israelite. Don't call me black no more. That word is only a color. It ain't fact no more. My cousin called my, uh, my cousin called Duckworth, know my worth, and Deuteronomy said, say, that we all been cursed. And he says, listen, I'm not, I'm not black no more, and I will, look at the key part. I won't follow any religion. Jay-Z said the same thing. In an interview, they interviewed Jay-Z. Jay-Z said, listen, I am not, I forget the exact words he used, but basically Jay-Z said, I'm not stupid enough to believe in organized religion. But you remember what I told you, Jay-Z is a 5%, a very similar in some ways to this group, 5% of the nation of Islam. And his line is, his line in his song is, he says, I am Jehovah God MC. That's why they call Jay-Z Hovah. And that's why he has you worship him when you go to his concert. They walk into his concert and he says, get your hands up. You notice that the first thing rappers tell you to do, put your hands up. Why? Putting your hands up is a sign of worship. They say, get your hands up, put your hands in the air. And once you put your hands in the air, then he starts to make the triangle. He loves the triangle, right? Which is a part of the hexagram. He's signaling to you who he serves. He throws his hands, get your hands up. And then he says, and, then, and what does he have, want everybody to say? Call him Hova. And what is Hova is short for? Jehovah. He wants to be worshipped. This is what happens when you don't understand your history. Because most people, many black Americans don't really understand their history. And, and it's, it's happened to me. It's Christianity and white man's religion. I was in Ghana. I was going to put a picture of me with all of the Adventist students. I spoke at the, uh, Ga uh, the University of, of Ghana, Legon. Um, in the capital. I had a great time in Ghana, and we went to one of the slave castles to see where the slaves were sent off. M Melania Trump was just there the day before. It was interesting because they loved the Trumps there. I, it was very bizarre. And so um, <laughs> we went to this place, and the guy giving the tour, I said I'll put a picture of him up here, he was so anti-white, so anti-West, he was so angry, and by default he was anti-Christian. And he, on the tour, he's given all of us Adventists, and there are two, like, German um, college students with us. So two white guys with us. And I'm like, this guy is, see, talking like this right in front of these poor guys. How uncomfortable must they be? And I, was, I said, you know what? Let me not get myself in trouble. I'm in a foreign country. Let me just be quiet. But I couldn't do it. At the end of the tour, I said, okay, let me correct some things. I said, first of all, Christianity is not a white man's religion. 
The truth of the matter is, there were Christians in Africa even before the church was fully established in Rome. And he said, what? And I began to give him this history. Ellen White says in The Great Controversy, page 63, again, this is a little bit of a diversion, but I think it's worth it for you all to understand this. She says in The Great Controversy, page 63, Ellen White says, in lands beyond the jurisdiction of Rome, there existed for many centuries bodies of Christians who remained almost wholly free from papal corruption. They were surrounded by heathenism and in the lapse of ages were affected by its errors. But they continued to regard the Bible as the only rule of faith and adhered to many of its truths. These Christians believed, look at this, Ellen White says, these Christians believed in the perpetuity of the law of God and observed the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. Churches that held to this faith and practice existed in Central Africa and among the Armenians of Asia. Did you see that? The idea that no black person in Africa had ever seen Christianity is a lie from the pits of hell. The truth of the matter is that Truth had been in Africa a long time. I have a good friend, a Ghanaian uh, pastor who's in the States. I went to Oakwood with him, and he has a book called Knowledge of the Creator God Embedded in African Culture. He goes tribe by tribe through Africa, and he shows that at one time, the truth had reached almost every tribe in Africa. In fact, they did mitochondrial DNA work on one of the tribes in Zimbabwe, and they found that they could trace through mitochondrial DNA the, the lineage all the way back to, the, to, the, to, to, the, to, to Aaron and the priesthood of Aaron. And they showed you how they'd come down to Africa from out of the Middle East. It was an incredible study they did in the States. The truth of the matter is, truth was in Africa, and it was battling with error, just like it did in the rest of the world. And truth was swallowed up in many places, but one place stayed strong. And one of them, of course, Ethiopia, which at the time included Somalia and the Sudan. It was a vast uh, kingdom of Christians right in Africa. How do we know this? Well, the Bible tells us. This is one of the Ethiopian Orthodox uh, pictures. This is uh, King Solomon. Who's that? That's the Queen of Sheba, who's the queen in Ethiopia, who came to visit to see his wisdom. The Bible says she wanted to know what he was all about. Now, the Ethiopians have some incredible oral um, history. And one of the things that they say is, and, and uh, this, I, I, I can't vouch for this, but it's an interesting story that they tell. They say that when the Queen of Sheba came, Solomon wanted to, wanted to lay with her. But she brought such riches out of Africa to him that there was nothing she could have wanted from him. So Solomon kept scheming and plotting. And you know how brothers are. He's trying to, you know, <laughs> Solomon trying to shoot game at the girl. He's trying to, look, I'm the king. I'm the smartest king ever. You got to get with this. <laughs> get with the program. And she's like, no, 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 no. So finally, she says, listen, if you can get me to ask you for something, this is according to their oral tradition, if you can get me to ask you for something, Solomon, I will lay with you. I'll spend the night with you. Because she knew she, there was nothing she could ever need from him. So what he did is he had a big banquet set up before she left to go back to Africa. And he set up this big banquet and he put hot spices in her food. I mean terribly hot spices in her food. And then he moved the water jug far away from her. 
And when she, oh, she started burning, the, according to the tradition, she turns to Solomon and says, can you please pass me the water? And boy, you can imagine Solomon's smile. From that union, Menelik I was born. Went back to Africa and brought back a knowledge of the truth. To this day, there's a church in uh, Lalabella, up in the northern part of Ethiopia, that claims to have the Ark of the Covenant. I don't think it's the original Ark of the Covenant. I think it's a copy of the Ark of the Covenant. But they have armed guards outside of that, that, church, outside of that church to this day. Also, to the, uh, um, it, the, the father of Haile Selassie is Menelik II. So Haile Selassie says his lineage went all the way back to David. His title was King of Kings and the conquering line of the tribe of Judah. This is why the Rastafarians, when, when Marcus Garvey, the, uh, the Jamaican Marcus Garvey said, uh, uh, a king will come out of Africa that we can follow. When Selassie was coronated and he had those titles, that's why the Rastafarians said, ah, there's the Messiah Garvey was talking about. But they thought Garvey was a prophet. Were they right? They were dead wrong. In fact, when Haley Selassie came to Jamaica, all the Rastafarians filled the airport. Selassie traveled a lot. There are videos of him with the Queen, uh, uh, the queen of England when she was young. He, he traveled around a lot. He gets the, to, on the plane in, in Jamaica, and he puts up his hands, and he tells them, I am not a god. In fact, he's a Christian. He's an Ethiopian Orthodox Christian. He says, I am not god. The Rastafarians say, nope, the translator messed it up. <laughs> That's not what he said. Now, I told you I used to spend time at Bob Marley's house, this famous reggae singer. And I remember Rita Marley, Bob Marley's wife, you know what she said? She said that when, when Haley Selassie lifted up his hands, she could see the nail prints in his hands. This is why you should not smoke marijuana, young people. <laughs> you will see holes where they don't exist. <laughs> Clearly, Haley Selassie had no nails in his hands. He was an emperor. But almost importantly, maybe more importantly is this, more importantly, is that when Philip, the Ethiopian, this is how you know that Judaism, or the monotheism, I should say, stuck in Ethiopia, one of the, the next queens, and it's funny, Ethiopia always has a queen, Sheba, Candace, matriarchal, very strong. Candace sends her, has one of her emissaries, one of the treasurers of hers, go all the way to Jerusalem. What is he reading on the way back? The book of Isaiah. Why was he reading the book of Isaiah? He was trying to figure out, is this Jesus, the Christ, really the Messiah that we've been waiting for? And God takes Philip and sends him to him. And they have a conversation, and they have a Bible study out of the Old Testament. And Philip is able to convince the Ethiopian uh, a leader, this, this dignitary from Ethiopia, that in fact, Jesus is the Christ. And the man is so excited, church, that he wouldn't even get all the way back to Ethiopia. They had to stop the cart right where they were. He said, there's water, and it's enough water. Meaning he believed in baptism by immersion. And there he was baptized and Christianity went to Africa. This is not me saying that this is biblical. So when they come to you and they say, listen, Jesus is a white God and, and all this. Jesus, let me tell you something. Jesus would have looked just like everybody else in the Middle East at the time. If you want to really be honest. And that's probably not very different than how they look right now. He wouldn't have been dark, 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 dark like many of us. 
And he wouldn't have been white, 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 like Northern Europeans, blonde hair and blue eyed. He would have been, probably been somewhere in the middle. That's the reality. Now, we, you know what's deep? God had enough sense to make sure Jesus was born before the Polaroid camera was invented. Because everybody be claiming him. You know, like Puerto Ricans kind of look brown and Indians kind of look brown. Everybody would have been saying, he looks like us. Instead, this is what the Bible says about how, how Jesus looks. When you want to find out what color was Jesus, this is what you need to know. The Bible answers the question. Isaiah 53 and verse 2 says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath, look at what the Bible says. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Why does the prophet tell you this? It gets me excited because the draw of Jesus was not his good looks. It was not the dimple in his chin. Nobody was drawn to Jesus because his hair was so beautiful. They were drawn to my Jesus because of his character. They were drawn to Jesus because of the way that he treated the least among them. The miracles he worked. The fact that he was meek and lowly because although he was the God of the universe, he, was not, he, he did not see it as a robbery to come and walk among sinful men. That's why I keep telling you all the reasons I'm a Christian. That's one of them. Because my God in Christianity came down to where I am. I was working at Loma Linda University. Um, and one of the heads of the department, that's the department I was training in, pulled me into his office and he said, Walsh, I found that you are a very devoted Christian, Seventh-day Adventist. I said, yes, sir. Uh, that's why I'm at Loma Linda, I think. And he said, well, I want to tell you that you shouldn't believe that stuff. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, did you read the sign on the way into work this morning? It's a Seventh-day Adventist institution. He said, no. He said, this is foolishness. He said, how could you follow a God that allows all the suffering that happens on earth? He said, we are scientists. He said, and he said it's like God is, is having a giant rat experiment. And we're just rats down here. And he's just like we test the rats for obesity genes and this stuff. He's just testing all of us. And he's up there like a great experimenter in the sky. How could you serve him? prayed in my mind quickly and my response was this sir you would be right except according to the Bible he became a rat and he didn't just come down here to be one of us rats he suffered more than any rat ever did he bore affliction pain and temptation that no human being could ever even fathom. Satan wanted to kill him at his birth. His whole life he was ridiculed and trampled upon. Any of our testimonies, any of our stories of how we were mistreated or misjudged or, or, or done poorly, none of it even begins to compare to what Jesus went through. So let me tell you something. If you're worried about what Jesus looks like, it's probably because you're more, more worried about what you look like than his character, when you ought to be more worried about your character than what you look like. Don't worry with that. That is Satan's tool. It's Satan who said, I'm beautiful. 
He's the one the Bible describes as saying, as saying he, was, he was corrupted by his own beauty. Yet, this is why the spirit of prophecy says that when Lucifer saw Jesus in the manger, he shuddered himself. He couldn't believe that one who was once so exalted would be brought so low. That's why you're a Christian. Not because Jesus has your hair texture or the width of your nose, or the color of your skin. I'm a Christian because he has a character that I pray one day I will also have. Cinnamon, odors, and ointments they sold in Babylon. Frankincense, and wine, and oil, and fine flour, and wheat, and beasts, and sheep, and horses, and chariots, and slaves, and souls of men. But Babylon's game is deeper than all the race stuff we just talked about. He wants us to stay there because if we stay our own race, we'll miss the real big picture. We'll miss the real problem. It is in Romans 6 and verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. The real power of Babylon is that it wants to enslave you in sin. That's its game. This is why the seven-day Sabbath is removed. Because if he can get you to simply just keep this, uh, another day, whatever day you want to keep, if he can get you to systematically do that, Babylon has you willfully, because if you know better, willfully sinning all the time. His end game is this. And we'll talk about this more tomorrow. He wants to trap you. He wants to use your limbic system, the reward pathway of your own brain against you. He wants that pride of Ezekiel 16 that Sodom had. He wants that pride in you to say, listen, I get to do what I want. It's my body. This is Brother Christian said, he wants you singing, it's your thing. Do what you want to do. He wants you trapped in all of that. In the Revelation, page 664, and since the fall he introduced is a moral one, it must apply to colors the warning of the judgment. It must be given in the last days. Therefore, it cannot refer to the Roman church alone, for the church has been in a fallen condition for many centuries. In fact, when you really start to peel it away, her daughters are the Protestant churches that refuse to follow the biblical truths. That is important to know. Revelation 17, 3, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, John says, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of the abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her head was a name written, Mystery. And you know when you look up the Greek for this, you can actually translate that as if they had, a, they had a secret doctrine. Something separate about Babylon. Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Literally, pointing to the fact that many true believers who started these churches in purity would be killed. And we heard, Professor Vath, unfortunately don't even have to go over it. How many Tens of thousands were slaughtered because they didn't believe, because they didn't want to follow the lies of Babylon. So there's a few things. We'll finish with just a few things. There are a few chains of false doctrines that are important that you have to understand. One is the state of the dead. 
sun worship and the rejection of the seventh-day Sabbath, spiritualism inside and outside of the church, the idea that the wicked will burn in hell forever and are burning now, the secret rapture. This is big in the States. People like the secret rapture because what they, what they basically, I, I won't get into it today, what they basically believe is the world is going to go to pot, everything is going to go haywire, and they're going to just get lifted up and they're just going to fly away and they're not going to have to deal with any of it. In fact, it's so prevalent a belief in the United States that many of the Christian uh, workers at American Airlines petitioned the leadership at American Airlines and said, we are asking that you never put two Christian pilots in the cockpit at the same time. They're afraid that the two, <laughs> they're afraid the two pilots would be lifted away and the plane would have nobody to fly it. Here's the problem with that. If you're a Christian, wouldn't you go up with the, plane, with the pilots? Another one is Israel as, as the center of last day prophecies. When you, when you go to many of, the, of these churches now, their basis of what they believe is around, in fact, American foreign policy has been developed around this in many ways. That Israel is the center of, 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 last day, of last day prophecy. And Tony Evans, I, I think I mentioned it earlier this week, the great uh, preacher out of Dallas, Texas, a first day preacher, he says that Jesus is going to return to earth, build his temple on the Temple Mount where the, where the mosque is now in Jerusalem. The, the great mosque is there in Jerusalem. And he will rule the world for a thousand years. And Tony Evans said in that sermon, and he will force the world. Jesus is going to force the world to keep his commandments. That is a lamb-like beast speaking dragon talk. And of course, there's the prosperity gospel. That's big. And I didn't think it was such a big deal until I started to realize there are a lot of Christians completely corrupted by the idea that if you're not rich, it's because you don't have any faith. It, it works okay in the United States. You know, in many of those mega churches you watch on TV, in order to sit up here, you got to pay more money than if you sit back there. They have an ATM in the, in the lobby. I've been into them, some of them in Atlanta. There's an ATM in the lobby. And... I, don't, I hate to say this out loud because I hate for any Seventh-day Adventist church to get this idea. You've got to turn in your W-2 forms. In America, that's the form the government gives you at the end of the year that says how much money you made. In order to join the church, you've got to give the church your W-2 form so they make sure you're giving them 10% of what you make. That's that prosperity gospel. These guys are driving around. I'll get to it a little more in a second. They're driving around in Bentley's private jets. They had a TV show about the, the pastors in Los Angeles. It was scandal. Ecclesiastes 9, the state of the dead. How does the devil do this? Of course, Ecclesiastes 9, 5 says, For the living know that they shall die. But what do the dead know? Nothing. Neither have there any more a reward, for, for the memory of them is forgotten. So what does the devil do? And I actually know the gentleman that made this movie. He's an Adventist, or he helped produce it. And this movie basically says that the kid goes, the kid dies, he goes to heaven, he sees all these people, his grandmother, his grandfather, these people, and he comes back and tells his family about it. The title is Heaven is for Real. This movie, The Preacher's Wife, Denzel Washington and Whitney Houston in their, in their prime days. Denzel Washington is a man who died, went to heaven, became an angel, and comes back, and the angel falls in love with Whitney Houston, even though she's married to the preacher. Preacher. 
Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. So what do they do? They try and teach our children, no, you live forever, the Ghostbusters. Literally, the, 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 these, these movies come out and they really push it. This is even one of, my, one of the great Christmas stories, a Christmas uh, a carol. And what is the prep? The whole thing is about ghosts. And I'm telling you, I am with grown people who should know better, and they're telling me that house is haunted. It's, it's, yeah, there's ghosts in that house. I said, my question is, is it for sale? Does everybody believe that? Because if everybody believes it's haunted, maybe I'll get a good deal on the house. I'll buy it. I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. I'll take it. I'll flip it and sell it. That cash flow quadrant, brother. First Thessalonians chapter 4. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. The Bible describes death as asleep. I don't have time to get into all of it, but the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The dead in Christ will rise. If the dead are already in heaven, how do they rise? And what kind of heaven would it really be if you were up there now looking at all the mess on earth? And so what do they do? They want to get kids. There's Casper the friendly ghost or the little friendly devil ghost, the movie ghost. This was a big hit. And it was a Catholic clairvoyant played by a Whoopi Goldberg who gets Demi Moore. And I, and I forget this guy's name, uh, Patrick Swayze. I, I forget these names. Oh, that's Patrick Swayze over there. Patrick Swayze, and he, he, his ghost comes back. And at the end of the movie, everybody in the whole theater is just bawling and crying. Oh, the poor ghost has to go back to heaven and leave his wife or go to heaven. You see how the devil plays on your emotions around these doctrines? But the other one is sun worship. I won't get deep into this. One of the things that has come into our churches is yoga. Yoga is sun worship. In fact, I was at a gym where they do it, and I stopped the lady. They had like an advanced yoga class. And I asked the lady, I said, really, when you're doing yoga, what are you really doing? And she says, you are paying homage to the sun. Sun worship. Yet, you go to Christian churches across the United States, they are literally having yoga services inside the church. And of course, the solar flare here tells you everything you need to know about what the Catholic church believes about sun worship. But the Bible tells you, it's sun worship is to replace. The worship on the Sunday is to replace the Sabbath. Exodus 28, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Revelation 1.10 says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Which day is the Lord's day? Luke 6.5. And he said unto them that the Son of Man is Lord also of the what? The Sabbath. And I could, we could do a whole thing just on that. This is one of the doctrines that they have rejected. It is a, it is a major rejection on all fronts. And even, this is how you know it's Babylonian, even when you show them from Scripture that the seventh-day Sabbath, many people say, it's all right. I've had pastors, bishops, who are, have first-day churches, and you show them, and they will say, I agree with you, but you know how much money I would lose if I stop, stop leading my church? Spiritualism. 
I won't read the verse here about the three unclean spirits. We talked about that last night. These are African-American women, black women in Baltimore, Maryland, who have left the Christian church and have returned to the religion we in America call voodoo. There are many names for it. And now they are voodoo priestesses, and they have left the church to join back into spiritualism. And this is the zodiac sign in a church. All of the signs of the zodiac, which is not something Christians should be involved. You should not get up in the morning and read the zodiac for your sign. That is demonic. The biggest one is, one of the biggest ones to me is this one. Will the wicked burn in hell forever? This is one of the most difficult ones. And you hear many people talk about the fact that they are not Christians because of this doctrine. How could a God be so cruel that somebody lives lives 70 years and does, and you know, he's not a horrible, horrible person, but burns forever. In fact, I went for a job. After all the stuff I told you about Sunday night, I went to try and get a job at a Christian clinic, not Adventist, a Christian clinic in Memphis, Tennessee. It was, they were the largest providers of primary care in one of the poorest, toughest cities in America. Per capita, the murder rate in Memphis, Tennessee is often number one in the U.S. And I said, I could go and serve there. So I went to go do this job interview. And one of the guys, the guy who was the vice president for, for, the, for, for spirituality for the clinic, could not stand me from the time I got there. And so when he got me, the first interview I had was with the lady who ran the place. She really liked me, and I thought for sure I'd get the job. When I went to the next interview, because I interviewed all day with them, they put all of the department heads in a room, and this guy had it in for me. And he started to ask me questions and tough questions, and, and then he finally he said, listen, let me just be straight with you. You're a Seventh-day Adventist. How do I know you're not going to come here and try and win people into your religion over ours? I said, well, because I'd be their doctor and I'd be seeing them as patients and, and I don't think, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be necessarily trying to steal sheep or anything in here. And then he said, well, what do you believe about Sunday. And I, I said, you know, and at that point I realized I'm not getting this job. But this man is getting a Bible study. <laughs> I said, one of the two is going to happen today, but I'm not getting the job. He's, and, and not just him, all of the department. And I went in. I went on through the Sabbath verses. Then, he, then he went, we went through the state of the dead. And what really upset them was when I said, and, and I, I offered it up to them. I said, and the wicked will not burn forever. I said, what kind of a cruel God would allow you to burn forever for something you did for 30, 40, 70, 80 years? And that, what? You see, this, it goes back to pride. That is a doctrine of pride, that I am going to be sitting up in heaven with my feet up on my golden Bentley while I look down and hear the screams of all of you idiots that didn't agree with me. You, you get what I'm saying? It's a pride issue. That's why they, they went again it so bad. So I wanted to just throw some verses up on this one because it's one of my favorite. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. They say, well, Jude 7 tells you that hell is going to burn forever. Except 2 Peter 2.6 says, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that should after live ungodly. Is Sodom and Gomorrah still burning? Nope. 
Malachi 4, 1 and 3 says, For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and, and, that, and, the, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch, and you shall tread down the wicked. Why will you be able to tread down the wicked? But they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, said the Lord of hosts. Malachi 4, 1 and 3. They will be destroyed completely. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, Jesus says, but the righteous into life eternal, the wages of sin is death. If the wicked burn forever, they would actually never pay the penalty for sin. They would also have immortality. Jesus tells you that, that what's everlasting about the fire is the punishment, the consequence. A loving God, you know what the Bible says, God says? He says, the destruction of the wicked, God says, is my strange act. Do you think he would want to sit there and watch people burn forever? No. And flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished? Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord? So the last thing I want to talk about is this one. The gospel of prosperity. I won't get too deep into it, but Time Magazine uh, I can't read the year here. I think it was like 2005, put out an article that said, does God want you to be rich? And they questioned in front of all of America the prosperity gospel. In fact, they mocked churches when they compared that Jesus lived such a humble, simple life with the idea that you're saying now that unless you have faith, uh, if you don't have faith, you won't get rich. In response to this article, this guy wrote the book, Yes, God wants you to be rich. The church is so, it's, it's so stuck on this idea. And there's nothing wrong with making money and doing well. That's not the issue. The idea is if you say that if you're not rich, you don't have the faith of God, how do you explain all the wonderful Christians around the world that have so little? That's Babylon. It's confusion. It's to try and turn you when you don't have resources into thinking somehow something's wrong with your faith. And now your faith is focused on material increase rather than, rather than on character development. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. I'll close with this story because just the, the, the punchline on that richest thing. My, cousin, my, my little cousin, um, born to two Adventist parents, was an incredible football player, American football. In fact, in Pop Warner, when we were little kids, this guy, when he was a little kid, I'm a little older than him, he, he would black a man among boys. He'd just wallop them. When his Adventist father saw how good he was in football, he would not take him to church on those Saturdays when he had games and take him to the park to play in his Pop Warner games. When he went to high school, he was such a phenom that one of the best private schools in the state of Florida recruited him to come play for them. It was the very same school where the pop icon Madonna sent her kids to high school. Gulliver Prep, you can look it up, in Miami, Florida. Sean played uh, Iron Man. He played both ways, offense and defense. He was a football phenom, church. He was, when, when he, when, when in his senior year, he won Gulliver Prep, their first state championship in football. He scored seven touchdowns in the championship game. He was that good. Every college and university in America wanted him to come play for them. 
So he had a room stacked with the papers of the full scholarship offers he had to play football. By now, of course, he hadn't been to church in years. He went to the University of Miami, the same school I went to medical school at, the same university, and he played there. His first year, he won a national championship for college football. By his second year, the National Football League, the NFL, you guys know the NFL? The NFL was recruiting him, and he left college to go play for the Washington Redskins, one of the vanguard programs in the United States around football. There's a draft where they have to pick who's going to go, and the, and the worst teams pick first to get the best players. So the higher you go in the draft, the more money you make. He was not number one, number two, number three, number four. He was number five. My little cousin signed a 36 million dollar contract to play football for the Washington Redskins. Let me tell you something, church. If somebody in your family comes into $36 million overnight, people in your family will lose their minds. I, I mean, I saw people do stuff I never thought they would do. Good Adventist people were going to stuff on the Sabbath to support him. Money. Well, because of his, he, 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 his parents weren't together anymore, and because he hadn't been in church, he was smoking weed, he'd drink, you know, he got into some trouble. He had bad anger problems because um, he watched his mother be in some abusive relationships. He had terrible anger problems. That's why he was so good in football, I think. Part of the reason. And so... Some boys came into our old neighborhood where, where I lived in Miami, one of the tough, tough, tough sections of Miami, and he, he left some of his banshees, these uh, ATV four-wheeler things that you, you ride in, the, they ride in the Everglades in Florida, I don't know what they call them here. Um, and, he, and he left them at one of our friend's house in the hood. And some boys came and stole his banshees. My cousin Sean does not play. He, he went, he got his gun, and he went and found the boys that took his his um, ATVs, and he held them up at gunpoint and got his machines back. Now, the problem with that is, when you're worth $36 million, how much time should you really spend in the hood? Basically, you really shouldn't go back to the hood anymore. You should basically graduate from the hood at that point. And so when these guys found out that he did that, and he was at my friend Mikey's house, we all went to church together. Mikey, all of us went to the same Adventist church. John was in the Pathfinders, he used to sing in the choir, everything. When they found out where he was, they went and did a drive-by with big semi-automatic guns. Sean says he was in the backyard. The bullets went through his truck, his SUV, through the house, through the back of the house, and he was in the backyard ducking bullets, coming through all of that stuff. His car, his brand new SUV, looked like Swiss cheese. And then, of course, not only did they shoot him up, they went and told the police he stuck them up first. Because he was worth $36 million, they came after him. Sean was arrested. He had to get a high-powered attorney to defend him. And all of that life began to catch up with him. But I have a grandmother from Jamaica who was a praying woman. She's passed now. A praying woman. And she began to pray for him. And sure enough, he got through that a criminal trial basically unscathed. He just had to give up his guns 
and he had to give up some other stuff, but he came through unscathed. The next off-season, I saw him at one of our cousin's baby shower thing parties or whatever they were having. And, um, you know, baby showers where they give them gifts, give gifts to the parents. And so he came to me and he said, Rick, he said, listen, I'm done with football in a few years. He said, you don't know who you can trust when you have all this money. You don't know who's your friend. It's really difficult to, to figure things out. He said, in fact, when it's all over, I'm going back to church. That offseason, he did drift into church one Sabbath, and when the appeal was made, he came down front to give his life back to Jesus. The football season started back up, and he went back to play football. And when he went back to play, he was having his best season ever. He hurt his knee. They were playing, the Washington Redskins were playing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in Florida. And it's because his knee was bad, he didn't go back with the team to D.C. to Virginia, he decided to come to Miami and check on his boat. He had a giant fishing boat, big like this room, big old fishing boat. He loved to fish, and he had his BMWs and all his stuff he wanted to check on and family he wanted to visit. So he and his girlfriend and their baby went to back to Miami to see family while the rest of the team went to Virginia. There were some boys who had been in his house, shouldn't have been in his house, but had been in his house, and they saw his jewelry laying around. His game checks laying around. His game checks were like $360,000 when he would play a football game. One game. And Sean was just, he would just leave the, leave the check laying on the counter. These boys saw this stuff and they knew he was playing in Tampa, so they figured they were going to drive to Miami from the other side of the state and they would break into the house and clean him out and nobody would know. The problem is they didn't realize he was home. So one of the boys broke in a, they broke in a back bathroom window. One of the boys had a gun on him. And when he came into the house, Sean came out of the, out of the bedroom. He could hear them, and he had his, his girlfriend and the baby, so he's trying to protect them. He comes out of the room. They're Jamaican, so he comes out with a machete. Cutlass. I don't know what y'all call those down here. And so he comes out. Jamaicans love those things. And he comes out. And the boy sees him and doesn't expect him. And I don't know if the boy even wanted to kill him, but he shoots at him and hits him in the, in the left leg. The problem is the bullet goes through his femoral artery. The biggest artery in the lower extremity. And Sean begins to bleed everywhere. His girlfriend is afraid. She has a gunshot, so she has a baby. She stays in the room. So she doesn't come out quickly to help him. He's bleeding there. His father later told me, I think every drop of his blood was left in that house. They call an ambulance, and the ambulance gets there. They couldn't land the helicopter to airlift him directly to the trauma center. So they have to drive the ambulance somewhere. They, a helicopter meets, they, they, they bring him there. They give him $60,000 worth of albumin. It's a protein they use to try and keep the fluid in his blood vessels. They, they, they do surgery, and they stabilize him. And my grandmother, who helped raise all of us, but especially spent a lot of time with Sean, she comes to the hospital and sits at his bedside and just starts to sing hymns in his ears. She's whispering in his ears. 24 hours later, she's still at the hospital. 30 hours later, she's still at the hospital. My brother David is there and he says, Mama, don't you want to go shower? I can take you home to come back. She said, no, I'm staying here. And she keeps talking to him, whispering in his ear, singing to him. And about 30-something hours into this ordeal, the doctor, the surgeon, and the nurse walk in. My grandmother's sitting there, and they're in a big 
uh, operating bay. They wouldn't even move him to a recovery room because he was a celebrity. They left him where he was. And the doctor and the nurse walk in, and the doctor says, Sean, if you can hear me, and he has the nurse put her hands in his hand, Sean, if you can hear me, squeeze her hand. And he squeezes. And he says, and Sean, if you can hear me, bat your eyes, blink your eyes. And Sean starts to blink his eye. The doctor looks at the nurse and shrugs his shoulder. The nurse looks at the doctor, and they walk out. As soon as that happened, my grandmother gets up, turns to my brother and says, okay, it's time to go home. I need to shower. My brother says, now? Yep, let's go. ESPN, CNN all reported that, in fact, Sean Taylor responded to the doctor's command, and he was going to make a recovery. I'm in California at Loma Linda, and I'm watching the news. I see all my cousins, everybody on the news, and I'm like, man, that's good. I called my brother. I said, David, is Sean going to make a recovery? I just heard that on ESPN. David said, I'm looking at Sean right now. He's as swollen as a, as, a, as a fish. He's huge swollen. He looks terrible. I don't know how they could say that. Within 24 hours or 36 hours, Sean was dead. I got the flight to fly to Miami to find out, to, to go to the funeral service. And all of the NFL was there. O.J. Simpson, crazy people like that. Everybody was there. I mean, all of ESPN, all of the sports world, all of the NFL was at the funeral. But I made a beeline to find my grandmother. I said, Mama, why is it that when it seemed like Sean was about to make a recovery, why did you get up and leave right when it seemed like the miracle was about to happen? My grandmother said, you don't understand. I sat there for three days plus, whispering in Sean's ear the Sabbath school lessons I used to teach him when he was a child, reciting the Bible verses on the fact that Jesus saves by the power of his blood. I sat there singing to him the hymns in his ears that would draw him closer to glory. She said, you don't understand. I wasn't trying to save him into this world. I wanted to save him into the next one. She said, but Ricky, I got tired. I was sitting there so long, I got tired and I, I couldn't take it anymore. And I prayed and I said to God, God, show me that he can hear me. She said, when I prayed that, the doctor and the nurse walked in. She said, and once I knew he heard what I was saying, I knew my work was finished and it was time to prepare for the funeral. Church, let me tell you something. That was a grand funeral. They had to hold it in an arena where they play basketball. But I want to tell you something about Babylon falling, about all of the economic wealth that Babylon has developed. When Sean died, they did not hook up his boat to the back of his hurts. They didn't have two and three of his BMWs being pulled to the, to the cemetery. His house did not get up, dismantled and buried with him. A couple of pieces of jewelry maybe, but all of the $36 million that was left was still sitting in the bank. I tell you this story to tell you that Babylon wants to offer you the riches of this world. But I want you to understand, like my cousin Sean, who had it all. When you go to depart this world, you can take none of it with you. And the only thing you can actually take with you is a relationship with Jesus Christ. But as every head is bowed and every eye is closed, 
really quickly, maybe there's somebody, who, again, who just want to give your life to Jesus. If yesterday, if you gave your life to Jesus yesterday, I want you to just stay with me down front afterwards. But if there's anybody else, you want to give your life to Jesus today. There were many of you the other day, but I, if there's anybody else, I just want to take a few minutes. Just raise your hand where you are. You can meet me afterwards up front. You don't have to stand today or come down front. Just raise your hand where you are. I see your hand, sister. Praise the Lord. Is there anybody else? You want to give your life to Jesus? Anybody else? Even if you raised it yesterday, you can raise it again. You don't have to stand today. We're just going to ask you to join us down front. I see your hand, sister. Praise the Lord. Is there anybody else? Tomorrow's not promised. My cousin Sean was 26 years old in the prime of his life with all the riches the world has to offer. I see your hand. Praise the Lord. When he was called to sleep, none of that mattered. Do you have Jesus in your heart? Are you living a Christian life? Or like Babylon, have you, are you living in confusion? You want to give your life to him today, just raise your hand. I'll stop now. I don't want to go long. I see your hand in the back. Praise the Lord. Is anybody else? I see your hand. Praise the Lord. Anybody else? Praise the Lord. I see your hand. I see your hand in the back. Praise the Lord. Anybody else before I close out? I see your hand, young man. Praise the Lord. You want to give your life to Jesus today? Praise the Lord in the back. Anybody else? As every head is bowed and every eye is closed, even while I'm praying, you can raise your hand. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the word of truth that Babylon is fallen. That her iniquity has reached unto heaven and that you have remembered her sins. But Father God, sometimes this earth seems so cruel and unjust. It feels like we have to take justice into our own hands. But if we can, be, if we can have the patience of the saints... One day all that was wrong will be set right. And Lord, we want to follow Jesus, not because he looks like us, but because we want to look like him in character. So Father God, I pray right now, the Lord, we would follow Jesus because of who he is, the eternal God who came to earth to save us. Father God, those who have raised their hand this week, I pray, Lord, that you seal their decisions with the Holy Spirit. Those that should have raised their hands or, or should give their lives to you that haven't, Lord, I pray in a special way, Lord, that you give them no peace until they find peace in you and they have no rest until they are resting in your arms. Father God, bless us that, Lord, we would be obedient to the calling of these three angel messages. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.